Hey there, this is Devin from Legal Eagle. You're smart. And I know that you're smart because you're listening to this podcast. But if you want even more incredible, educational-ish content from me and my friends, then you've got to get Nebula. Because in addition to offering tons of terrific podcasts ad-free, Nebula is a place where my friends and I get to release tons of experimental and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Plus, all of my videos are ad-free. Just head to watchnebula.com slash radio to sign up now. The headline is, Roe vs. Wade is dead. But... Is that true? Well, that is mostly the case, but the reality of this particular situation is so much worse than that headline makes it seem. And I'm not talking about that from a political standpoint of the idea that the constitutional enshrinement of a woman's right to choose may be dead in America, but rather the procedural machinations of what happened in this particular case are bad for the rule of law, it creates uncertainty, and it hurts the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. The outcome in this case is not good for anyone. Because in the dead of night, without any judge signing the decision, five conservative justices on the Supreme Court overruled the right to abortion, allowing a Texas law banning all abortions after six weeks to go into effect with no exceptions for rape or incest. And to accomplish this, the five justice majority acquiesced to a procedural trick dreamed up by the Texas legislature explicitly for the purpose of evading federal judicial review. This isn't the way that any cases are supposed to be decided, let alone one of the most important cases that has ever come before the Supreme Court. Hey, Legal Eagles, it's time to think like a constitutional scholar, because in 1973, Roe vs. Wade challenged a Texas law that criminalized helping a woman get an abortion. The Supreme Court ruled that the law was unconstitutional, that women had a right to an abortion during their first trimester. 48 years later, in 2021, Texas passed a new bill that outlawed abortion after six weeks, a clear violation of Roe and the subsequent Casey vs. Planned Parenthood case. Rather than criminalizing abortion, this time Texas gave private citizens the right to sue anyone who aids a person in getting an abortion giving them a chance to win $10,000 if they were willing to narc on the abettor. The law also created a procedural Rube Goldberg machine meant to deny anyone the right to challenge that law in federal court. So what did the Supreme Court do on Wednesday night? Did they overrule Roe versus Wade and its progeny without doing so explicitly? And what happens to all of the women who are stuck in the middle in Texas? Well, it's time to find out. So let's talk about a summary of how the Supreme Court got to what is still technically the law of the land today, and how the Supreme Court found a right of privacy, which then led to a woman's right to choose. Now, as we've covered on this channel in the past, the right to privacy is not specifically mentioned in the US Constitution, but according to still technically current jurisprudence from the Supreme Court, they have found that that right to privacy is implied by several amendments. The First Amendment allows a person to choose any religious belief and to keep their choice private. The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable violations of privacy, government searches and seizures. The Third Amendment establishes a zone of privacy in a person's home. The Fifth Amendment creates a right against self-incrimination, which therefore protects someone's private information. The Ninth Amendment says that the enumeration of the Constitution of the certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. Courts have interpreted this as allowing for broad protections of privacy rights in ways not specifically listed in the first eight amendments. And the Fourteenth Amendment prohibits states from making laws that infringe upon a person's autonomy, protections provided for in the first 13 amendments. Without this right to privacy, states would be allowed to prohibit married couples from using contraception. It would criminalize certain kinds of intimate sexual contact between consenting adults. It would ban teenagers from using birth control and it would outlaw abortion. Because before the Supreme Court's decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, it was legal for states to ban all of that behavior. Now, abortion rights in the US are controlled generally by two cases, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This is a very, very brief summary, but Roe 
Roe struck down a Texas law that criminalized aiding a woman in getting an abortion. The Supreme Court ruled that this was a violation of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment because it violated a woman's fundamental right to privacy. First trimester abortion became legal for any reason, and abortions in the second and third trimesters were restricted unless certain conditions like risk to the mother's life uh, were met. Now in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court more or less reaffirmed the holding of Roe that women had a right to a safe and legal abortion, but altered the standard for analyzing the restrictions to that right. The court overturned the trimester framework entirely in favor of a viability analysis. The court's decision also replaced the strict scrutiny standard of review required by Roe with the undue burden standard, under which abortion restrictions were unconstitutional when they were enacted, quote, for the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. Crucially, before viability, Casey says that the state's interests are not sufficient to interfere with a woman's right to choose. Which takes us to this current Texas heartbeat bill. Here at issue is Texas Senate Bill 8, which effectively makes abortion illegal after six weeks with no exceptions for anything, including rape or incest. And it doesn't even take viability into account. This plainly contravenes the holdings of Roe and Casey. The legislature admits that this is exactly what they intended to do, asserting that there is no obligation to follow federal law. Quote, the legislature finds that the state of Texas never repealed either expressly or by implication, the state statutes enacted before the ruling in Roe versus Wade that prohibit and criminalize abortion unless a mother's life is in danger. Under SB 8, any Texas resident can sue a person for abetting an abortion and collect a minimum of $10,000 plus attorney's fees. Section 171.208B lists the remedies permitted by this new cause of action for these private attorneys general. If a claimant prevails in an action brought under this section, the court shall award injunctive relief sufficient to prevent the defendant from violating this subchapter or engaging in acts that aid or abet violations of this subchapter. Two, statutory damages in amount not less than $10,000 for each abortion that the defendant performed or induced in violation of this subchapter and for each abortion performed or induced in violation of this subchapter that the defendant aided and abetted. And three, costs and attorney's fees. And that last one, costs and attorney's fees, is one way. Only successful plaintiffs are entitled to costs and attorney's fees. Successful defendants are not. It is a one-way fee-shifting provision. Now, this law was written very strategically. It doesn't allow private bounty hunters to sue the women, but it's written very broadly so that anyone who helps a pregnant person could be sued. Anyone who pays for or reimburses the costs of an abortion through insurance or otherwise can be in a better. This means a person's friends, family, doctor, counselor, minister could be sued. This could be an Uber driver or a person who contributes funds for an abortion. This is also, of course, an attack on employees of abortion clinics, since anyone who works there is liable if they defy this law and help induce an abortion to occur. In the event a person successfully sues an abortion provider, the court must permanently shut it down. And if the defendant in one of these cases actually prevails, they're not permitted to seek attorney's fees from the other side, only the plaintiffs are. As Justice Sotomayor explained in her dissent, the law, quote, deputizes the state's citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbor's medical procedures. So there are obviously plenty of things about SB 8 that we would ordinarily expect to be struck down in court after a full hearing on the merits of the law. It's clearly in violation of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But that's not what the Supreme Court did here. Instead, they took advantage of a Kafka-esque procedure created by the Texas legislature. The Supreme Court's 1908 decision in Ex parte Young established that someone raising a constitutional challenge to a state law can sue the state officer charged with enforcing that law. So usually when a state passes an anti-abortion law, abortion providers file a pre-enforcement suit against the state officials in federal court challenging its constitutionality. They are allowed 
allowed to file this suit because if an unconstitutional law goes into effect, it will immediately curtail individual rights. And when a district court grants a preliminary injunction, the law never actually goes into effect. This has happened repeatedly over the decades, frustrating conservative attempts to overturn Roe. So how did the Texas law get around federal court deference to Roe. Well, it eliminated the state officials from the equation so that there aren't any state officials who can be sued. The law states, quote, the requirement of the subchapter shall be enforced exclusively through private civil actions. The law can be enforced by anyone who is against abortion, but it can't be enforced by state or local officials. Meanwhile, abortion clinics can't sue the state of Texas because no state official has the power to enforce this law. And if a court entered an injunction against the enforcement of the law, the argument is that it would be null because state officials have nothing to do with enforcing this law. The Texas Attorney General and other state officials can't enforce this law, so theoretically they can't be sued. Other common targets can't be sued either. The governor has no power to enforce the law, so he can't be sued. You can't sue the Texas legislature because they have legislative immunity. So the only litigants who can challenge SB8 are people and organizations who are actually sued in civil court. But it's not clear whether a person who is sued can actually say that the law is unconstitutional. That's because section 170 1.208E eliminates several defenses. One, ignorance or mistake of the law. Two, defendants belief that the requirements of this subchapter are unconstitutional or were unconstitutional. Three, a defendant's reliance on any court decision that has been overruled on appeal or by subsequent court, even if that court decision had not been overruled when the defendant engaged in conduct that violates the subchapter. Four, defendant's reliance on any state or federal court decision that is not binding on this court in which the action has been brought. Five, non-mutual issue preclusion or non-mutual claim preclusion. The six, the consent of the unborn child's mother to the abortion. And seven, any claim that the enforcement of the subchapter or the imposition of civil liability against the defendant will violate the constitutional rights of third parties, except as provided by 171.209 and section 171.209 expressly denies third party standing in state court. Texas has argued that since a pregnant woman can't be sued, a pregnant person lacks standing to challenge the law. And under this law, pregnant women are deprived of any agency. And a third party like an insurance company abortion rights group also cannot invoke the constitutional rights of a third party unless the Supreme Court gives them standing. And note that this law is specifically taking aim at the current extant uh, jurisprudence on the Supreme Court and says that if Roe or Casey is overturned by the Supreme Supreme Court, you weren't allowed to rely on the Supreme Court jurisprudence because it was later overturned. So there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that this law was written specifically with an intent towards avoiding federal oversight. It's sort of evil genius in that respect. And normally that wouldn't necessarily be an issue, but the Supreme Court, as we'll talk about in just a minute, has acquiesced to the gamesmanship of this particular bill in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. But let's talk about the procedural history of what happened when this law was passed, because that raises questions too. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the Texas law on May 19th, 2021. The law is known as a heartbeat bill, which bans doctors from performing abortions once they can detect a fetal heartbeat around the sixth week of pregnancy. Over 15 states have enacted heartbeat bills and federal courts have struck down each one because they violate the right to an abortion established by Roe and Casey. And despite their unconstitutionality, legislatures keep passing the bills. Texas added these unique provisions to the new law, which allow private citizens to collect civil bounties 
for snitching on anyone that abets an abortion. As an aside, there are many laws like these on the books. They're called private attorney general laws, where someone who isn't personally affected by the law can sue on someone else's behalf if there is indeed a violation of the law. Generally, it has been democratic legislatures that have passed private attorneys general's law because they allow individuals to enforce the law against generally large corporations. And you often see this in a class context where they're small violations that you aggregate on behalf of a class of people. And often it was generally conservative executives that railed against these particular laws. These were the kinds of things that President Reagan railed against, saying that really the only people that made money were the trial lawyers and that we needed things like tort reform. So if nothing else, it is perhaps ironic that the Texas legislature has adopted this particular tool. Now in July, 2021, Texas abortion providers sued to enjoin the law before it became effective on September 1st. Since the providers can't sue state officials and the legislature has immunity from suit, the providers sued the court personnel who are responsible for enforcing the law, a state judge and a county court clerk. They also sued Mark Dixon, an anti-abortion activist who plaintiffs assume would be one of the first people to file lawsuits to collect the bounties. Now that's generally a no-no because courts are not in the business of offering prospective opinions. And the court clerk, judge, and activist filed a motion to dismiss. But the federal district court, Judge Pittman, presided and denied the motion on August 25th, allowing the suit to go forward. The federal court agreed with plaintiffs that the defendants would in fact play a role in enforcing the statutes, either by filing a lawsuit or by adjudicating them. The defendants quickly filed an appeal on the motion to dismiss with the Fifth Circuit, the Court of Appeals that hears the uh, appeals from the district court. The defendants also wanted the appeals court to halt other proceedings in the district court, including a hearing on the challenger's request for a preliminary injunction that was scheduled for August 30th. Now, up until this point, this was a fairly standard trip to the Court of Appeals in a pre-enforcement action. However, this is where the normal process ended. The Fifth Circuit granted the defendant's request. It canceled the upcoming hearing and granted the motion to stop the district court proceedings and then denied the plaintiff's request to expedite the appeal. So in other words, the Fifth Circuit stopped the district court from stopping the law from going into effect. And the Fifth Circuit declined to explain the basis for its ruling. So the plaintiffs had to appeal directly to the Supreme Court for an injunction enjoining the law from going into effect while the legal case wound its way through the courts for a merits decision. Remember, at this point, no merits decision has been decided. A full decision on SB8 would normally take years to resolve by the district court, the Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit, and then the Supreme Court. So with this request in front of the Supreme Court, under this procedure, the emergency motion first went to Justice Alito, who was assigned to hear emergency requests from Texas. Alito had the right to act on his own or refer it to the full court, and he chose to refer it to the full Supreme Court. There, one day after the law went into effect, a five justice majority ruled that there was no harm that justified an emergency stay. The unsigned order from the Supreme Court stated that it was uncertain whether the court clerk and judge would be asked to enforce the new abortion law. Basically, they were saying that they had no idea whether anti-abortion activists who had waited over 40 years for this moment would not necessarily seek to enforce the law immediately. This, by the way, is part of the court's probably unfairly named shadow docket. In other words, this isn't a full appeal to the Supreme Court. It's an emergency application that often these things are decided just by not taking them up. It's actually uh, fairly rare to get a decision from the majority when they say that they're not going to grant uh, injunctive relief. And what they do in this particular case is they basically say that while the law is probably unconstitutional, there are some procedural quirks that are not going to allow them to get to these questions right now, and they just don't see the need to grant injunctive emergency relief. And here is the entirety of the Supreme Court's decision. It's about 500 words from 
this unsigned five conservative justice majority. Quote, the application for injunctive relief or in the alternative to vacate the stays of the district court proceedings presented to Justice Alito and by him referred to the court is denied. To prevail in an application for a stay or an injunction, an applicant must carry the burden of making a strong showing that it is likely to succeed on the merits and that it will be irreparably injured absent a stay, that the balance of the equities favors it and that a stay is consistent with the public interest. So far, so good. That's completely normal. That is the standard for a temporary restraining order in an emergency context like this. The applicants now before us have raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law at issue. Yeah, no kidding. But their application also presents complex and novel antecedent procedural questions on which they have not carried their burden. For example, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. And it is unclear whether the named defendants in this lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against the applicants in a manner that might permit our intervention. The state has represented that neither it nor its executive employees possess the authority to enforce the Texas law either directly or indirectly. Nor is it clear whether under existing precedent, the court can issue an injunction against state judges asked to decide a lawsuit under Texas law. Finally, the sole private citizen respondent before us has filed an affidavit stating that he has no present intention to enforce the law. In light of such issues, we cannot say that applicants have met their burden to prevail in an injunction or stay application. In reaching this conclusion, we stress that we do not purport to resolve definitively any jurisdictional or substantive claim in the applicant's lawsuit. In particular, this order is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to Texas's law, including in Texas state courts. This decision raises so many questions. First, can plaintiffs actually sue the court clerk and judge in this kind of situation? Justice Breyer's dissent suggests that the answer would certainly be yes, since you can't have a right without a remedy to enforce it. Quote, it should prove possible to apply procedures adequate to that task here, perhaps by permitting lawsuits against a subset of delegatees, say, those particularly likely to exercise the delegated powers, or perhaps by permitting lawsuits against officials whose actions are necessary to implement the statute's enforcement powers. And that's also the gist of District Court Judge Pittman's order on August 25th, quote, while empowering private enforcers, SB 8 limits the defenses available to defendants and subjects them to a fee-shifting regime skewed in favor of claimants. For example, defendants in SB 8 enforcement actions are prohibited from raising certain defenses enumerated under SB 8, including they believed the law was unconstitutional, that they relied on a court decision later overruled that was in place at the time of the acts underlying the suit, or that the patient consented to the abortion. Section 5 of SB 8 requires state judges to weigh the undue burden anew in every case as part of an affirmative defense in line with SB 8's new strictures regarding construction and severability of claims. Judge Pittman noted that SB 8 doesn't leave state officials with nothing to do. Instead, the law as it is now codified empowers state agencies to bring administrative and civil enforcement actions against medical professionals who participate in abortions that violate the six-week ban based on their state-issued licenses. And under the State Medical Practice Act, for example, the State Medical Board must initiate investigations and disciplinary action against, as well as refuse to issue or renew licenses to, licensed physicians who violate the provision of SB 8. The State Nursing and Pharmacy Boards and Health and Human Services Divisions also perform similar administrative functions. Judge Pittman's point was that if providers were not able to perform abortions, they face private enforcement actions as well as professional disciplinary sanctions which are enforced by the state. And I'll note parenthetically that when you involve the judicial system in enforcing things in other contexts, that clearly involves state action. For example, the limits of defamation law fall under the First Amendment because it's the court that 
is enforcing defamation judgments. And same with the court's inherent contempt authority. Often that runs right up against the First Amendment because it's the judge who is doing something in court. That is a state action. In this case, both the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court bent over backwards to make sure that this law would go into effect, which is probably going to cause chaos within Texas because people just don't know what's going to happen and what the status of the law is. And we know that this is beyond the pale because Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his dissent that if nothing else, that the court should have enjoined the law from going into effect so that there was proper time for uh, the case to wind its way through the Fifth Circuit and Supreme Court on actual merits decisions. Now it's not completely unusual for the Supreme Court to grant an emergency stay, which prevents the law's enforcement until the case makes its way through the courts. And for a party to prevail, they have to show that there would be irreparable harm and that they would be likely to prevail on the merits. In a case like this, there would presumably be irreparable harm. People who wanted abortions but were unable to get them. And a party making that argument would be extremely likely to succeed on the merits since a six-week ban on abortion goes directly against Roe and Casey. But the Supreme Court's majority claimed that these providers failed to make a strong showing that their legal arguments would be likely to succeed on the merits, which is basically telegraphing that the Supreme Court will, when given the chance, overrule Roe versus Wade right out in the open when they have the opportunity. But here in this particular case, they're splitting the baby because the majority specifically states that the law raises real constitutional questions, but punts because of the crazy cockamamie procedure that the Texas legislature created. This is completely nuts. One would think that if you recognize the clear unconstitutionality based on the court's current jurisprudence, Casey is still technically good law, then it would only doubly mean that you should enjoin this law if they have this crazy Rube Goldberg machine built into this law, not letting them get a free pass because of the machinations that they've created here. And in her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor did not mince words about this move. Quote, the court has rewarded the state's efforts to delay federal court review of a plainly unconstitutional statute enacted in disregard of the court's precedents through procedural entanglements of the state's own creation. The court should not be so content to ignore its constitutional obligations to protect not only the rights of women, but also the sanctity of its precedents and the rule of law. Chief Justice Roberts also dissented along the same lines, quote, the statutory scheme before the court is not only unusual, but unprecedented. The legislature has imposed a prohibition on abortions after roughly six weeks, and then essentially delegated enforcement of that prohibition to the populace at large. The desired consequence appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility for implementing and enforcing the regulatory regime. Justice Breyer disagreed with the majority's view that his hands were procedurally tied. Quote, Texas law delegates to private individuals the power to prevent a woman from obtaining an abortion during the first stage of pregnancy. But a woman has a federal constitutional right to obtain abortion during that first stage. And Justice Kagan's dissent called out her colleagues for abusing the shadow docket. Quote, yet the majority has acted without any guidance from the Court of Appeals, which is right now considering the same issues. It has reviewed only the most cursory party submissions and then only hastily, and it barely bothers to explain his conclusion that the challenge to an obviously unconstitutional abortion regulation backed by a wholly unprecedented enforcement scheme is unlikely to prevail. In all these ways, the majority's decision is emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision-making, which every day becomes more unreasoned, inconsistent, and impossible to defend. So regardless of where you stand on the political issue of abortion, this is just bad lawmaking and bad decision-making. It's bad for the rule of law. The way that the court went about this, allowing the Fifth Circuit to undo the preliminary injunction that the district court put in place has created massive uncertainty for no reason. The Supreme Court will probably overrule Roe versus Wade in the next term. Why go about this half-hearted measure to do it on the shadow docket 
uh, ahead of time. It also leaves open all kinds of new crazy laws. It telegraphs to every state in the country that they can get around constitutional issues and constitutional review by simply using the same private bounty hunter enforcement mechanism. And it could go both ways. Imagine if a state passed a law that said, uh, if you aid or abet someone exercising their freedom of religion, uh, then you're subject to a $10,000 fine and you have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. Or on the other side of the political spectrum, if you aid or abet someone buying a firearm and exercising their second amendment rights, uh, then you are subject to tens of thousands of dollars in fines and uh, you have to pay the other side's attorney's fees because only private individuals are going to enforce this anti-handgun measure. But in reality, none of that's going to happen because this was an ad hoc decision with one outcome in mind. If a, a similar law comes up in a different context, the Supreme Court will just simply say that it's different for some ad hoc reason and it will uh, enjoin those laws from going into effect. Again, this isn't necessarily about the political issue of abortion. It's about trying to uphold consistency with the law and the rule of law itself. This is terrible for all kinds kinds of jurisprudential reasons. Though as an aside, remember that this is only with respect to whether the right to an abortion or the right to choose is enshrined within the constitution itself. Uh, there are always legislative remedies here. Congress could pass a law that grants exactly the same rights uh, as conferred by Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Of course, a law can always be undone, but of course it's harder to undo a law once it's been passed. And obviously there are procedural issues with the filibuster that make it unlikely that the bare democratic majority in the House and the Senate uh, would be able to pass such a law. But that is always an option here. Now, the headline, Roe versus Wade is dead, might be a slight exaggeration because technically Planned Parenthood versus Casey is still the law of the land. But the law in Texas has been changed and Roe versus Wade, if not dead, is on life support. And it looks like it's only a matter of time until the current makeup of the Supreme Court finishes the job that they started on Wednesday. Though the Justice Department has now filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas, but it probably won't succeed in any meaningful way. In the complaint, the DOJ argues that the states have no right to quote, impede, burden, or in any manner control the operations of the constitutional laws enacted by Congress to carry into effect the powers vested in the national government. A state law is invalid if it, quote, stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress, or if it directly regulates, quote, the activities of the federal government. The U.S. has also sued to assert other federal interests that they claim SB 8 unconstitutionally impairs. The statute uh, is alleged to have unconstitutionally restricted the Labor Department's Job Corps program, the Defense Department's TRICARE Health Program, the Office of Refugee Settlement, the Bureau of Prisons, the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Office of Personnel Management. And that's not so surprising because as we talked about, SB 8 bans nearly all abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy, which is in direct conflict with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But the problem here is that Planned Parenthood versus Casey probably won't be the law next term when the Supreme Court takes up one of several abortion related cases. And as we talked about, cases that are decided on the shadow docket related to emergency petitions don't carry any precedential value, but it does telegraph what the various justices are willing to do and in what context. And this is a pretty clear signal that they're going to over rule Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade when it comes up on the official docket in next term. And regarding the bounty hunter provisions, the DOJ asserts that enforcement by private citizens makes them state actors. But again, uh, here the Fifth Circuit has already ruled on that particular argument and the Supreme Court dismissed the argument on the shadow docket. So it's extremely unlikely that the DOJ is going to get a second bite at the apple on that particular issue, especially when the Fifth Circuit has already weighed in and the Supreme Court has approved of that decision. And speaking of that court, 
Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit finally wrote an opinion to explain its decision in Whole Women's Health. This is actually unrelated to the new DOJ lawsuit. But according to the Fifth Circuit, SB 8 emphatically precludes enforcement by any state, local, or agency officials. The defendant officials thus lack any enforcement connection to SB 8 and are not amenable to suit under ex parte versus young. Therefore, the Fifth Circuit opines that the plaintiffs don't have any claim, quote, against the state licensing officials, namely the executive directors of the Texas Medical Board, Texas Nursing Board, or the Texas Board of Pharmacy, or the State Health and Human Services Commissioner. The court says it's mindful that SB 8 violates people's constitutional rights, but that women can't sue at this particular time and that they might be able to sue in the future. Here's that language. We are mindful that SB 8 applies to pre-viability abortions, which may raise serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law, the citation, but also see noting the court's order in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law, including in Texas state courts. So effectively, the Fifth Circuit is saying that the only way to challenge this law is to wait for a person to sue under the bounty hunter provision and then raise the constitutionality of SB 8 as a defense to liability. And the Fifth Circuit was certainly not going to waste the decision of the Supreme Court, stating, quote, we are also mindful of the real world effects while courts resolve these vexing procedural questions, but we point out, as did the Supreme Court, that potential SB 8 defendants will be able to raise defenses before state courts that are bound to enforce the Constitution. So unfortunately, there's going to be a ton of confusion while we wait for someone to try to enforce the bounty hunter provisions, at which time the defendant will then try to claim that SB 8 was unconstitutional from the get-go, in which case we'll be right back in front of the courts making all of these same arguments again. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.